Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving higher. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Marcus with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. He's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the world of the commodity market. So, Sean, how you doing, bud? Very good. Very good. Love to have you back, man. It's been a week off here. I had Moving Iron Summit, and for whatever reason, I was busy. So I had uh, didn't have a chance to, to run you down last week, but I'm glad you could come back on this week. I just hope everybody got their uh, enough napkins and, and, and silverware. Yeah. So. They got plenty of napkins, silverware, and and some <laughs> and some pizza cutters. So good <laughs> on. and make sure they got the, the their their free Ginsu knives. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> All right, man. Um, let's take a look at what's going on in the marketplace. Um, so last week we had or this. I'm sorry. Tuesday we had uh, the report come out. Um, not a big shocker there. Not a big cascade moment by any means, one way or the other. Felt like to me maybe the the market had already anticipated what was going to happen, and the USDA maybe played it a little bit safe. But I guess Sean, what are your what's your reaction so far this week to what you've seen from, since Tuesday? Yeah, the USDA never gets to the final number here in September, and they never do. They they are incrementalist. They incremental. They incremental. Small crops keep getting smaller. Has been an adage that has been held true through the annals of folklore of grain market history that once the yields start coming down, they keep going down and they eventually get around to the right number 
typically by January, they finally come out to the number that's they're going to stick with, rightly or wrongly. But the crops are going to get smaller. Now we can argue how much smaller they're going to get, but they're going to get smaller. Um, and so, you know, that's the concept of an early harvest low that we've been talking about for a while that we thought we would get this late August in the mid-September early harvest low develop because of we, I, I thought that the market would start to get a sense that these crops are small enough that, you know, we've already, as you said, priced in the bearish news and we might not have been pricing in this bullish news. And obviously now as we head towards South American planting and of course the winter wheat crop planting, especially in Russia, Ukraine now, um, we're starting to shift. And of course, what's really going to drive the market now, Casey, is the word coming off the combines. As the combines start to roll more aggressively, we start to hear what we're getting, you know, the market's going to get a sense for how much lower do we need to go on crop yields before we think we've gotten ourselves low enough. And, you know, there's people are bewildered that the corn market didn't go down this week on 2.2 billion bushel carryout. And remember, spreadsheets are what they are. It's a spreadsheet. The numbers on there are not real. They're just fictitious numbers that are put on a page based upon someone's expectations. It's not real. 2.2 bushels is a theoretical number that the USDA is suggesting could be the case come next summer. But when we look at yields likely further declining here, and we think demand's way, way under uh, being under uh, forecast. I mean, we think demand's going to be con considerably stronger um, over the next 12 months. That when we really, when we work through the likely numbers for getting weather, you know, any weather outcomes for the future crops, we think we're going to be closer to 1.5 to 1.6 billion bushel carryout when it's all said and done. We're not going to get there tomorrow, but I'm saying, you know, over the next three to six months, we're going to get to a more middle number like that. And I think that's why the market is resisting. It doesn't want to go down. They throw all this bearish news on corn. It's just not going down. The market senses that the USDA is not correct. And I think that as the market begins to reprice that reality, we're going to see the corn market start to, uh, you know, push itself back up here post harvest. Remember certain farmers don't sell. They screwed up. They should have done it. They meant to do it. You know, they, they're, they're full. They lost their phone. They didn't get the cash sale made and they have to sell at harvest. But once that's done, there isn't a farmer out there who's going to sell a bunch of corn down here. It's not going to happen. They're going yep. to put it in the bin. They're going to lock it up. They're going to say, come get it sometime in 24. And that's your post-harvest rally. That's why you get a post-harvest rally. Um, if we're correct with our overall weather synopsis, which we put out to our subscribers a few weeks back, we're very, very concerned about drought risks in north, central, and central west Brazil this coming growing season, both for Mato Grosso soybeans. 50% of production, and for second crop corn, 75% of corn production. We're very concerned that we're going to have major drought problems in that area. And, of course, Brazil is the big dog. It's becoming the big dog in both of those. And that, to me, says that future production potential for Brazil, which was fantastic last year, is going to have to be throttled back down. And, and, then, and then lastly, of course, our work says we're going to be back into a neutral La Nina weather pattern next year in the U.S. growing season, which means we're, that the El Nino weather everyone thought we were going to have this year didn't happen, and the El Nino weather everyone thinks we're going to have next year isn't going to happen. Drought risks are going to be back 
on the table. And then the only question becomes, is it a near miss like this year in terms of Gleisberg cycle, mm-hmm. you know, type of extreme drought? Um, even if it's a near miss, it still means production falling below trend. Casey, we have not had a, a, a trend line yield crop in three years. Um, right. And I don't think if I'm looking out for next year's growing cycle and 25, I don't think we're going to make trend line in either of those years. And I think the risks are high of a more extreme Gleisberg cycle drought, which means we're going to have five years from what our weather work suggests of not having trend line yields. I'm not sure that's, I don't think that's happened before. I'm not aware of having five years of below trend. We've had three, but I don't think we've had more than three. So if that is correct, then that would be an unprecedented period of weather volatility, not allowing the U S farmer to produce a trend line yield crop. And that, is going to be a more common feature in this new weather volatility cycle that we've talked about in your show for years now that is ongoing and it's going to continue to be ongoing for the foreseeable future based upon changes in the sea surface temperature profile of the Atlantic and the Pacific and the throttling down of overall solar sunspot activity. And so this is uh, the other thing that I keep looking at is, you know, insurance companies are woefully under reserve, meaning they're continue to reserve against future payouts based upon the last 50 years of weather and property destruction. And in the last five years, you know, they've had a one, they've had a hundred years worth of claims in five years and they're just woefully under reserved. I mean, they are so upside down Casey. So what that means is insurance premiums, including farm uh, crop insurance is going to continue to escalate we talk about inflation. We're going to talk about property casualty insurance inflation like we've never seen before. And, and at some point, I think the government's going to have to bail out the industry. The industry is not – they're so far behind the eight ball on their reserves and what they and what their liabilities are against their reserves. I, I don't even think they, they can get themselves out of the mess that they're in. So so that's a, that is something that, that producers are going to have to factor into their cost of production is that the – insurance component is going to just get out of control and uh you know we always talk about fertilizer prices we always talk about seed prices we always talk about cash rent yeah but the insurance price premiums uh cost inflation is going to be very very extreme and i just think that's a a ticking time bomb that uh isn't going away anytime soon yeah that's a good point you brought up about insurance companies and i've been seeing a lot of that kind of start to pop up a little bit here with the amount of wildfires and some hurricane stuff that we're seeing, just some some as these weather patterns change and, and draw more um, extreme weather, I guess is the best way to put it in in very uh, erratic form. You know, it's not like it's uh, huge, just nonstop one big deal. But it's just these little things that happen. But when they do happen, they're very intense. And so, it's- well, and, and, and you know, the, the way it, you know, I, I'm not an insurance person, <laughs> but the way I would be looking at insurance is you have to say to yourself. You know, are we correctly reserving against the inflation of the assets that we're reserve that we're protecting? Right. Well, we know we've had wild inflation, um, and and the price of things are through the roof, and they're they're not correctly increasing their reserve rates at the level that the that the value of what they're covering. That's the first thing. Secondly, we're having, as you said, a, a greater number of very significant, highly amplified damage events um, that then 
mean that you have a larger event in, that is affecting a larger area whose assets are now inflated at, a, at an accelerated rate. They're, they're just not reserving correctly. And it's a big problem. I almost feel what's ultimately going to happen is it, I think that we're going to have some kind of a, you know, kind of like farmer Freddie Mac where they have some a quasi a government guarantee behind them. I almost feel the only way the insurance industry can work here based upon that how far behind the eight ball they are and what the, and what their reserves are against future payouts. Mm-hmm. I think that the U.S. government is going to have to back them up with a quasi guarantee against um, against payouts exceeding reserves. I, I just feel like we're heading towards an insurance property casualty insurance crisis, including crop insurance. Yeah. So. Yep. Okay. All right, man. Good point, sir. Uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about what you see happening right now with uh, um, uh, the cattle market as you're looking at what's going on there with, with these changing in, in prices and stuff like that on, on the, on the uh, corn side. We're starting to see some development of, uh, what could be a shorter crop than what some people are anticipating? How, how do you anticipate watching the cattle market over the next three months here going into the first year? Well, you know, I mean, everybody knows, at least for the U.S., that the future supply of cattle that can come to the market to create future supplies of beef are going to be <clears throat> historically low, if not record low, over the next 12 to 18 months. I mean, that is established we can mess around with the weights a little bit, but for the most part, we just know we're not going to have a lot of supply. So what it really comes down to is what price level is it going to take to bring enough beef in from foreigners who have more supply? Um, and what price is it going to take to, to, to get the consumer to back off, to kick the can down the road so that we can get the increase in the herd and, and start getting more animals coming to the market a couple of years from now? Um when we look at the current price, you know, approaching uh, $2 and uh, on, on the lives and, you know, obviously $250 on the, on, the, on the feeder cattle, you know, we're at levels that historically are very, very high and typically have done the, that job. And so the question is, is it different this time? Do we need to do more than we've done in the past? Or are we simply going to be sitting here in sort of a topping out form, meaning not, you know, just you know, oscillating at this high level, just buying time or not so far, you know, the market made new highs yesterday, Casey. Um, uh, I believe that both, uh, if you look at the futures of live and feeders, they made new hot new rally highs yesterday on, um, on continued lack of supply and demand being stronger than expected. I continue to look at the Brazilian cattle price that's dropped 30% in the last six months. I continue to look at the Australian price that's dropped 40% in the last six months, wondering how the U.S. can maintain such a high price level relative to the largest exporter of beef in the world and the third largest exporter of beef in the world. So far, we've been able to do it. So I still feel in the world of being a producer, your job is to manage risk. You have prices that are profitable, that are working, and yes, they may continue to work, and yes, they may continue to go higher, but your job is to make sure that in case there's a rogue wave economically that comes along and knocks the market down and takes the cattle price with it, that you aren't sitting there wondering why you didn't take the money home on the farm. So in the least, if, you don't, if you're not comfortable making cash sales because you're afraid the price is going to go higher, 
put some protection under the market that keeps your top side open but protects the price. To me, it's an absolute risk management no-brainer to think about managing that risk on the farm as a cattle producer. When you're looking at hog producers with the biggest red year that we've ever seen in history and dairy seeing the biggest red year we've seen in, in history, you know, um, and, and just coming off the cattle industry seeing some of the biggest red they saw ever a couple of years ago, just don't lose sight of prosperity never lasts forever. And you have to, you have to get the, the you have to take the good when it's, when it's there. Yeah. So this is not about prices. It is about just doing the right thing and making sure you do what you need to do. So because we all think we know for sure what the future holds, you know, obviously I'm in the job of predicting futures, the future of everything. And, but I can tell you as, as, as good as I think I am and as smart as I think I am, you can't know everything and things can surprise and you can make mistakes and so anyone that thinks that there's no pot there's no chance that the US cattle price can go down it's impossible uh, history says that is not a good place to be in, in, as as a producer you there always is a surprise that can take the legs out from underneath no pun intended so <laughs> that's a good one Sean uh, they had they had a uh rally of sorts that we've seen in the sugar market and the sugar market is obviously something I'm going to pay attention to now because it's sugar beet harvest season and we're going to see what those sugar content and ton looks like as you start looking up at what's going on right now we see sugar at about 27 cents a pound so I guess Sean as you're looking at what's going on there with the sugar market what's your thoughts there? It's a while Casey a market gets into a, a situation where you get into a supply demand rationing crisis. We saw this in the oats market um, a year and a half ago where it just it just went off. The lumber market saw this. The orange juice market just recently saw this where it just got into a spot where there was just no supply and it just blew through anything remotely historically high. Um, and the sugar market has the potential for that, meaning we've had two years of deficit. We're moving into year three. We've had a, we've had a very poor monsoon for – India, they've banned exports as of October, sugar exports. And we now have had a 1 in 100 year to 1 in 200 year flooding event due to Typhoon Haiku that came into southern China that produces 85% of the sugar in China, which means that their sugar crop is in a world of hurt. I think that's the tipping point. There's always a tipping point that puts the market into um, the panic phase and i just don't see how you know this market has correctly priced this kind of a shortage yet i just don't see where we've done that yet and you look at the chart breaking 27 cents i mean only a couple of two or three times in the past have we been any higher um you know in the 70s we got to 70 65 70 cents one one year and then we got to 45 to 50 cents one year since the 70s the high price has been about 35 to 40 cents, you know, and it, I always say blow off tops can't be predicted. They're highly emotional other than to say, it looks to me like, you know, we are in a very dynamic rapid price discovery mechanism where the market is going to quickly try to find where it needs to go to settle the score here on what looks to be an historic perfect storm of everything that could go wrong goes wrong shortage here in the sugar market and so that's where we are 
And so if you're a sugar beet producer, um, obviously you have the, you're selling to the domestic market, but to, to the extent that you can um, export some of that to, to foreign buyers, I mean, you're, you know, that's, those are going to be some pretty profitable sales. Yeah. So. Cool. So you got something good to look forward to there for a little while. I haven't, haven't had a year where sugar beets were, they've always kind of been average here the last five years. Now I got a chance to really make some money on them. So that'd be, that'd be great. Assuming the crop comes through. I, I think it, I think it could create a, a pretty sweet return. That's for sure. Awesome. Awesome. No pun intended, right, Sean? <laughs> no pun intended. Just, just, I don't know how this keeps happening. Don't know. <laughs> right on. All right. A couple more things. We'll wrap it up here. I, I guess as you take a look at, at weather patterns going through the end of fall here, if you start, you know, we're hitting to September, hitting that last quarter of the year, um, going into that first quarter, um, basically, you know, some people call it fall in Nebraska. We just call it winter. And uh, so it, well, it's like, it's like Florida. We have, <coughs> we have the, we have the hot summer and then mm -hmm. we have the cool summer. Yeah. That's uh, we, two seasons, hot summer and cool summer. We have uh, we have cool summer for about two weeks and then we get winter <laughs> from the next nine months. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess as you look, as you look at the, uh, uh, how these things are playing out, Sean, um, we're starting to see some cooler temperatures roll through this week in, in most part of the United States. And as you look kind of long-term, those cooler temperatures start to stick around a little bit longer. What's your weather pattern saying through the last quarter and the first quarter of the year here? Well, for the planting season, you know, we always want to worry about wet weather during October. Sure. I think we're going to get some wet weather. It looks like the, the, the El Nino atmospheric response is finally going to start establishing itself which means typically a wet fall so so you know that would mean that's good for the river by the way but um you know mississippi river uh, you know keeping the flow but it, it could slow down harvest um considerably so be on the lookout for potentially some excess wet weather um some potential you know frost in the north but um to me the bigger um the bigger thing to watch is Russia, Ukraine. They're trying to get the winter creep crop harvested. I mean, uh, planted now, right? So, obviously, the number one region in the world for wheat exports. They rule the day. And when I look at Ukraine and Russia, um, they're extremely dry. When you look at the next thirty days expectation, um, it'd be some of the driest thirty days between now and let's say mid October in 35 years that's not good for trying to get the winter creek the winter wheat crop planted on time or if it is get gets planted on time getting it planted in the right conditions for good establishment one of the big problems for the wheat market is that you know russia has had a couple of good growing seasons um due to a very good start to the planting season this could be where they get caught uh against the eight ball and are really not going to get the acres planted and are not going to get the establishment planted. They're not going to have the crop potential that they've had in the last few years. In fact, the potential could be quite, quite poor if they get off to that kind of a slow start. That should start to impact the market, Casey. Um, I think in the next few weeks, the market's going to start paying attention to that. What happens in Russia and Ukraine does not stay in Russia, Ukraine. Forgetting the war for, I'm just talking about weather now. This is just weather. Um, and you know that could be a big, big story. Remember, the seasonals in winter wheat turn are now strongly up into the fourth quarter, meaning the winter wheat market likes to rally 
this time of the year, especially if it can find a good story uh, to get them excited. I think a Russia-Ukraine too dry to get the crop planted story would be a very significant catalyst, fundamental catalyst, weather catalyst that would help support a typical upseasonal the war notwithstanding, whatever that may, may may or may not do. So I, I think if I'm looking at the biggest impacts for the, you know, let's say the next three months, I'd be paying attention to Russia, Ukraine. I think that could be the, the place that is the catalyst for some kind of a grain, corn, wheat, short covering rally, whatever you want to call it, that gets some of the bearishness in the market. And makes them think a little bit uh, differently about that. As I said earlier in the show, I'm very concerned, not about Argentina this year, but I'm very concerned about uh, Central North, Central West, Brazil drought, December through March. I'm really worried that that's going to be a feature that, um, and because you know we learned last year that Argentina, even though they had a half a crop, it didn't really impact the market that much because relative to Brazil, they're really small. Relative to the U.S., they're really small. They're big yep. in the world, but but not big. They don't. They're not big enough to matter that much. But Brazil is. Right. Yep. You know, for sure. I I continue to believe that you know we've been accustomed that the big weather rallies occurred during our growing season because historically we were the big dog in soybeans and corn. I'm now that Brazil is becoming the big dog in corn and, 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 and soybeans. We may see bigger weather rallies now during the winter spring months versus our summer, because Brazil is actually starting to matter more to the global balance sheets than the U S doesn't mean the U S doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's not important, but I think Brazil actually might matter more now in the psychology of the market in terms of weather problems and your bigger rallies, your bigger price spike peaks that typically have occurred in the midsummer may occur in the mid-spring. Instead, we need to maybe shift our marketing strategies backward a little bit based upon the shifting uh, production profiles of Brazil versus the U.S. Yeah. Okay. All right, man. Uh, lastly, <clears throat> I asked you this question on another podcast that I can't find anywhere to save my life. Um was it last January, two January, like January 20, that they had the uh, the Tonga volcano eruption or was that in 21? Uh, it was uh, early 21. Early 21. All right. So now we've had um, something like, what was it, 70,000 U.S. Olympic pools worth of water vapor get blown up into the atmosphere uh, from that. And um, plenty of white papers have been written about it because nothing in recorded history has been ever been matched. Um about the uh, with that magnitude uh so here we are two basically two growing cycles uh worth of information that we see right now sean and as you take a look at <clears throat> what's going on now you had hinted towards uh earlier when we talked about this that this water vapor was going to have an effect just didn't know what it's going to look like yet and some of these warmer temperatures that we've seen over the last couple of years and a lot of stuff that I've read and some stuff you've talked about too how are, pointing, are kind of pointing towards that water vapor as, as something that could have been causing these temperatures. So I guess, what's your thoughts there, Sean? Well, there's no, it's undeniable that water vapor is the most powerful greenhouse gas on the planet by far. Sure. And when you pump that much of it in the stratosphere at one time, doubling the concentration overnight, one could certainly speculate that there would be a warming effect over the two years hence. Yep. It's never happened before. 
We don't know the extent. Obviously, there's other factors that drive temperatures. It's just not stratospheric uh, water vapor in the stratosphere. But what one would have contemplated, and many of the papers from people who are far smarter than me, who have multiple doctorates in, in subject matter that I couldn't conceive of understanding, um, speculated that you know hot weather extremes would likely be a consequence for at least a couple of years. And we've seen that. We've seen temperatures exceed in many areas, temp, you know, the highest temperatures ever seen in recorded history. Um, and we, once again, we, we can't know exactly how much of that was specifically due, but we have to believe that a, that, that was a, a fanning the flame with lighter fluid event. And so um, I think that the papers and the research and the expectation that we would see hot weather extremes has proven to be correct from this. But it looks like it's going to start to dissipate, meaning when you look at the atmospheric uh, aerosols in the stratosphere case, you don't stay there forever. Right. They'll stay there for two or three years, and then they start, you know, they, you know, sulfur dioxide precipitates out, so does um, water vapor. And we're starting to see the water vapor begin to precipitate out of the stratosphere. And so I would think this is the last year of seeing the, the Tonga effect be this extreme. There could be a little carryover effect next year, but I think we've seen the extent of the hot, dry weather extreme potential for the Tonga was the last two growing cycles. And I think that that, that, that effect is going to be largely diminished as we go forward, and then we will get back to other factors that drive temperatures, not this, you know, um, rogue wave event that took place that's created an extra kicker for here for a couple of years. So the answer is, I think we now have a pretty good handle that there was a strong warming effect, but that it's, it should be winding down now. Awesome. Okay, man. Sean, good one as usual. Folks want to reach out to you, get more information about what you're doing over at Hacker Financial. What's the best way to do that? We have a Twitter page at Faradex 11. We have a uh, LinkedIn page as well. Plus, we have our website at Hackett, H A C K E T T, advisors.com, where we from time to time put out interviews with you and others, and sometimes, you know, put some quick posts out there on some things that we're looking at that gives everyone an idea of our, of our fundamental weather work and what our forecasts are like, see if what we do and how we do it might be of value to those that are involved in agriculture. Right on. Sean, I appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Casey. Talk to you soon. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast, and go over to the YouTube channel to see the video version of this at the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. I know. That's clever. I know you guys were shocked by that. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related. And uh, just got back from the Moving Iron Summit. I want to thank everybody that came to that and was a part of that and uh, all the sponsors and stuff that helped put that together and, and uh, make that possible. So without you guys, that would not have happened. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour. We're Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron, folks. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. 
Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's IronComps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. In the 21st century Hard-working people Working hard for you and me Moving higher Time and time again Through the years you'll find us here Moving higher